Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 47. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Zach. And we have a special guest with us. He is joining us for this podcast, maybe some podcasts in the future. We have with us... Uh, hi, my name is Donovan. And Donovan has actually uh, done some stuff with us in the past, but I think this is the first podcast we've had you on. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. All right, so we got some news, we got some comics, and of course we've got your upcoming releases. This is the last episode before San Diego Comic-Con, so I'm going to start off by saying if you are going to San Diego Comic-Con, make sure you are following us on Twitter. So as much as I was against Twitter, uh, I f- actually realized Twitter is actually a good source of getting uh, everybody who's going to Comic-Con constant updates of what we're doing, where we're at, and stuff like that. So if you're going to be in San Diego, make sure you're paying attention to the Twitter account, Batman Universe, on Twitter, and you'll be able to follow everything that's going on. Myself, Apple, and Josh will all be at San Diego. We'd love to meet up with you guys at any point in time. Keep in mind, we will be running around covering everything Batman. Based on the schedule that was announced, it looks like there's going to be plenty of stuff even though there's not as much going on as normal. So make sure you're doing that. But with that being said, let's get into the news. We only have two things of news. The first thing we've got is on July 2nd, Comic Book Resources posts up an interview with J.H. Williams. Most of the interview discusses Williams' art style and direction he has taken on Batwoman. And as I mentioned in a previous podcast, we're going to stay away from kind of the artistic interviews and stuff like that. But there was one interesting question that was posed to him about what's going on and the current status of the Batwoman series. So I'm going to read the question, and Josh is going to read for J.H. Williams. I wanted to ask you about the new Batwoman series you're working on. Are there any new details that you can reveal? Can you give any kind of hints as to when we'll see the first issue? I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the release date yet. All I can say about the launch date is you're going to see something small come first and then something more substantial after that. But it is coming out sooner than I would like, personally. I would like to have a lot more lead time. People will be seeing something very soon, and hopefully they'll really like it. As far as the direction of the series itself, there's a little bit of everything in here. As the series progresses, the sensibilities and types of stories being told definitely represent me without losing qualities of what made Batwoman cool in the first place, the thing that Greg introduced. We're going to be working in quite a few different genres, even though it's all under guise of a superhero epic. The first story arc is a very much a horror story. The next one is more espionage intrigue, and the one after that is a fantasy epic. Then we go into a bit of a family drama, but everything will be interconnected through plot points and have natural progressions into each other, so it won't feel jarring or jaunting in any way. It will feel like further extensions of what came before. Okay, so that's his answer for that question. When do we think the Batwoman series is coming? I don't see it happening anytime before October. I think this is going to be something that's going to be... The first issue will come out either November December, but no earlier than that, obviously, because solicitations through September are already up. 
October is right around the corner, and unless we hear something in the coming week, I doubt we'll hear anything about Batman coming out in October, which means I'm, I'm assuming because he's saying it's coming out soon, we're looking at maybe October, maybe very soon we're going to hear this, or maybe November. So that, what do you guys think? I never like it when uh, an artist says, well, this is coming out too soon for my taste. Like, they're whining about deadlines. That, that annoys me. And how vague he's being. Well, first you're going to see something small and then something a little bigger. So I, I, I don't know how much of a play. Between that and that, it sounds like there's not as much of a plan in there. I am intrigued by this multi-drama thing, though, like the whole horror story, family drama, etc. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Um, whenever an artist has this displeasure with something then it's typically something that a, a, a portion of the fans will probably not like anyway. So that kind of that kind of sends some alarms. But, um, you know, I guess it's one of those wait-and-see situations. Uh, I could I could see this coming out as early as October just because him describing the first story arc as a horror story. I could see that fitting in with the Halloween sort of theme. But, yeah, him complaining about the, the timetable is a little concerning to me, although he is somebody that, from what I understand, is never happy with his work, so I don't I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Solicitations are coming out in a week, so by the next podcast, we'll actually, you know, we'll know what's going on in October and whether or not it's going to be happening. But then again, DC has been known for doing horror things not in the month of October sometimes. Oh, wait, and that's right. Solicitations for September had, like, four or five bat books having vampires and werewolves in them. <laughs> Just saying. All right, Apple's moving fame. along. All right, uh, the only other thing we got to report is some bit of news that was passed on to us from Heritage Auctions on July 7th. During the weekend of August 5th and 6th, there's going to be an auction where they Heritage Auctions will be auctioning off a copy of Detective Comics number. 27. It was bought for originally $1,200, but they're estimating it could go for up to $400,000 plus. It is, uh, it is graded at a 7.5. Obviously, it's not going to reach as much as the issue back in March did, which I think it ended up at $1.2 million. But yeah, I mean, another issue miraculously going up for auction. Where are all these coming from all of a sudden? I think this guy's selling because the success of that other sale because think about it we we look back a year ago the most expensive copy of detective comics 27 sold for four hundred thousand dollars and i don't know how long it was before or when that happened but that's what you know detective comics 27 was rated at it was rated at four hundred thousand dollars then this other issue comes along comes out of nowhere by the way Rated at a 9.0, what is the chances of that? And it ends up getting 1.2. Well, this guy who's got the 7.5 has got to be thinking to himself, whew, this might be the time to, uh, you know, get this out of here and get some money out of it. It's true. Holy hole in a donut! All right, so that's all the news. Uh, we do have a bunch of comics to go over. So we're going to start off with Batman and Robin number 13. <laughs> Anybody home? <laughs> Listen, Boopsy, even though you never call and never write, I still got a soft spot for you. Batman and Robin number 13, written by Grant Morrison with artwork by Fraser Irving. This is part one of the Batman and Robin Must Die story arc. Now, this issue opens three days into the future during this eclipse which is, I'm assuming, the time that Bruce Wayne will be returning. The issue starts off with the death of Bruce's parents, but instead Bruce 
doesn't survive, Thomas Wayne has survived. And we see that Thomas Wayne actually hired Joe Chill to kill Martha and Bruce. Now, from what I'm taking from these panels, this would have happened if Dr. Hurt was really Thomas Wayne. I just think this is Morrison giving us an alternate reality sort of situation. But I don't, I don't really know. But anyways... We then see Hurt returning to Gotham pretending to be Thomas Wayne. We then see Dr. Hurt arriving at Wayne Manor where he has captured both Dick and Damien. Hurt then pulls out a gun and shoots Dick in the head. We then cut to three days earlier at the Gotham police station where Batman and Robin are confronted by a supposed sane Joker. The Joker explains to Batman and Robin that without his Batman around anymore, he has lost the desire to be the clown prince of crime and they can trust him. He explains that he wanted to gain their trust, so he did this as Overton Sexton. Batman and Robin then explain that Overton Sexton is a real crime writer. We then see Knight in England digging up the grave of one Mrs. Sexton. Inside, we find the real Overton Sexton dead. He was buried alive with the corpse of his wife. The Joker explains that Sexton killed his wife, and what he did was just karma. The Joker begs for Batman's trust just this once, but he isn't going to get it. Commissioner Gordon then walks in, and the Joker is brought into police custody. Batman tells Robin to stay with the police, and Gordon and Batman leave in the Batmobile. In the car, Gordon explains that all of Gotham's drug dealers have suddenly fled the city. They reach the Bat Bunker. Batman explains that an eclipse is set to occur in three days, and that should have some symbolic value for the type of people they're dealing with. In the bunker, Gordon and Batman work on putting the pieces together. They soon realize that Pig, Santo, the Flamingo, the 99 Fiends, and El Penitente are all bringing the next gen generation of viral narcotics to Gotham, addictions that you catch. Dick explains that the antidote that Pig left behind could be a catalyst, a way to deliver the addiction once activated by a viral trigger. He also explains that the Joker has not played his part yet and must be watched carefully. Gorn then informs Batman that Robin is inside talking to the Joker now. Dick flips and then hurry, hurries back. Gordon asks if Damien will be okay, and Batman explains that it's not Damien he's worried about being killed, it's the Joker. Back in the Joker's holding room, Damien is annoyed by the Joker's constant si smiling. The Joker explains that a bullet went through his jaw and out his forehead. The muscles were cut and stitched badly, and the smile won't go away. The Joker begins to beg for sympathy, that he is truly sorry for what he has done. Damien then begins to explain the true meaning of chaos as he removes a crowbar from under his cape. The Joker then smiles and says, you sound just like, like him. Damien then hits the Joker across the face with the crowbar. The Joker then begins to cry for help, but the cops say, screw him and Damien continues to beat him. We then see Gordon and Batman tra now traveling by air. Batman explains that if he is right, the entire city could be addicted overnight. They have to act fast. Just then, two men with rocket launchers fire away, sending Gordon and Batman crashing down into Blackgate. As they exit the wreckage, they soon realize that they are surrounded by a bunch of pigs, Dolatrons. We then cut to Arkham, where we see members of the 99 Fiends busting open the door of a patient. The patient is handed a mask, and we discover that it is none other than Professor Pig. To be continued. Who are you? I'm your worst nightmare. Over in Gotham City Sirens, Maggie Kyle is still on her rampage, uh, thinking that she's seen some angel and demons, no pun intended, and that this demon has possessed her sister, Selina, this cat demon, and it's telling her to... So the angel's telling her that she has to squash all the demons and this whole religious thing so maggie kyle's continuing to attack harley and selena despite their protests selena and harley are both very surprised about half how fast and well her sister is fighting 
She keeps insisting that Selena's being possessed by this cat, and Maggie tells Selena that Harley will be spared because Harley's not pure evil like Selena is. Harley is merely confused. Harley inadvertently gives Maggie her villainous name, Sister Zero, while she's moving in for her other attack, which gets turned around on her because uh, while choking Harley with the rosary, she gets drugged as well, and now she can see the cat demon that's surrounding Selena, and now she's on Sister Zero's side and starts attacking Catwoman as well. The fight continues into a church where Selena had stolen a relic years ago and gotten caught by Maggie, an act that Maggie hasn't really forgiven her for and uses it as one of the examples about how the cat demon has overtaken her. But Selena then explains to Maggie that she later returned the relic because she didn't feel that she should have it. Opening the box to see the relic, the spell wears off of Maggie, and the hold breaks over Harley as well. Maggie hightails it out of there with a big jump confusing Selena and Harley some more, saying that they will meet again. Harley wondering if it was a drug or not. Because of the way it wore off, she doesn't think that it was a drug, and they're left wondering what it was that made everyone see all these demons. Maggie is on the rooftop of a nearby building. She can still see her angel, despite the spell temporarily wearing off before, or whatever it was in the rosary, and she sees that the cat demon hasn't fully absorbed her sister, and that she can still be saved. She decides that the saving will have to be done via exorcism, and that's where this issue is left off. That's right, pigs! And here's the paddle! Next up is Red Robin number 14, written by Fabian, illustrated by Marcus Toe, inked by Ray McCarthy, colored by Guy Major. Now this issue opens up with Robin the Boy Wonder, a.k.a. Damien Wayne, going over Tim's hit list database that he set up in the last issue. Damien's amused, you know, at seeing all the villains up there, but then he's incensed by something we can't see off screen. Cut to Red Robin fighting Brutale, an unknown mass villainess in a nightclub. Tim exposits that the two bad guys were basically being used by the Penguin as leg breakers to threaten the opposite club. Tim takes out Brutale and chases the masked woman through the streets of Gotham, where he almost nabs her but loses her due to a billboard nearly falling on him. He deduces that the billboard was burned off deliberately, but decides to table the possible suspects and heads back to the bat base. While Tim updates Brutale's profile on the hit list, Damien insinuates Tim's reasons for the list, saying how Tim goes after one after one dangerous priority, another due to whereabouts, and various threat levels. He hints that he wants to go out with Tim on patrolling, but Tim says another time and goes after detectives Cavallo and Wise for dealing with links in the Golden Dragons in issue 13. The next day, Tim is with Tim and Tiffany Fox at a press conference to basically bring the whole corrupt Gotham City Police Department officers to light in congruence with their proclivities towards the Wayne Foundation. In the crowd, it's Vicki Vale, and she confronts Tim and Tam, and at first, she, as she talks about the engagement, she hints to Tim that she knows both about his, Bruce, and Dick's secret nightlife. Tim notes to himself that at first he needs to teach Tam how to pull off a proper poker face, then he has to add Vicky Vale to the list. That night, Tim decides to take Damien out on patrol. They track down the costume woman that Tim chased the night before, and just as Tim is about to crash through her apartment window, Damien cuts the bat rope with an edged R. The two Robins scrap for a bit while with Damien telling Tim that he brought this upon himself. Tim's had enough and ropes both the costume girl towards Damien as a means to knock both of them on their feet and keep the girl from escaping. Tim then proceeds to beat up Damien, saying how he's never had a chance the second Tim decided to go all out. The fight ends when Dick returns and points out how the two have found themselves fighting in Crime Alley, the place of Batman's origin. 
Back at the bad base, Alfred, while Alfred is sending to Damien's sculpted face, Dick asks for an explanation. Damien shows everyone Tim's hit list, which apparently also includes the list of the DC Universe's heroes, implying Tim's basically pulling a Tower of Babel. Damien's once again shows his outrage at this, but also his disappointment in not being trusted. Dick remarks to Tim that he realizes he's not on the list, and suggests to Tim to be wary in treading Bruce's footsteps. He asks who's next on Tim's list, to which we cut to Cavallo and Wise putting a hit out on Tim Drake and approaching Scarab to do it. And that was Red Robin number 14. Here, kid. I think you lost this. I coulda handled him. Coulda, woulda, didn't. Superman, Batman, number 73, written by Paul Levitz, with artwork by Jerry Ordway. This is the sacrifice storyline. The issue opens where we last left off with Lois Lane, who is about to be burned at the stake by a group of Superman cult members who resent her for marrying Clark Kent. Lois continues to attempt to persuade them out of their decision, but it doesn't work. They light the sticks below her, and she... She refuses to die, and she breaks the staff that she is tied to and begins to fight these lunatics. Luckily for Lois, Batman shows up and helps her break free. We then cut to Lex Luthor, who has assembled a group of scientists and plans to extract immortality from the stars. And then we get one of Luthor's usual becoming of God, becoming a God speeches. We then cut back to Batman asking one of these men who told them to burn Lois Lane. When Superman interrupts the interrogation, demanding to know who as well. The man eventually talks and tells them that something called the Visionary told them to kill Lois to show their devotion. We then see all three working the case through their own methods. The three eventually meet up at the next cult gathering where the head member is holding a glowing orb with the Superman crest in the middle. They ask the orb what they should do and it tells them they must kill Lois. Superman then comes in and tries to reason with them when the orb begins to shoot out flames. Superman grabs the orb and flies off and it explodes in the sky. The flames from the explosion begin to form some sort of creature. Superman uses his breath to extinguish the monster and the danger is gone. Back at LexCorp, we learn that the cult is part of Luther's Operation False God plan. He is pleased that everything is going his way. To be continued. <coughs> Grundy not feel good. Grundy gonna feel a lot worse. Joker's Asylum Killer Croc. The Joker frames this story, how he's been framing the other stories, doing this whole, hey guys, I'm going to tell you a tale of subversion. He's talking to an unseen inmate of Arkham Asylum who's being taken to his cell, and he's talking about how the blood got onto this person's cell. The story of Killer Croc begins, a new doctor is trying to get through the Killer Croc psyche, and it goes just about as well as you can imagine. Killer Croc gets out of his restraints by biting off his own hands, and the doctor is, of course, killed. Killer Croc escapes from Arkham then via the sewers and is being hit in some guy's place healing while his arms are growing back. This guy is a kind of a middle management mob boss and him and his wife wind up taking care of Killer Croc and feed him while his new arms are being regrown and adjusting to his body. The guy's name is Edgar and his wife's name is Juliet and they use Killer Croc to work their way up through the mob. Pretty soon the wife begins to play Croc and her husband against each other though as she feels that she's being forced out of the decision making. Finally, after Croc has developed an emotional attachment to Juliet, she gets a black eye and tells Croc that Edgar did it when in fact she had one of her friends inflicted on her to trick him. This sends Croc in a jealous rage after Edgar. Edgar is killed and Juliet brings in one of her people to finish Waylon Jones off, thinking that now she can control everything. Unfortunately, the assassin is dumb enough to only shoot Jones once and he wakes up kills the assassin, leaving Juliet to beg for her life, saying that 
they're the monsters. She and him aren't. Well, he kills her anyway, and then we get the whole moral lesson on who's the monster? The monster or the people who are mean to the monster? We then go back to the Joker framing of the story, and it turns out that the inmate that's being dragged back into Arkham is Waylon Jones himself. And he's taken back to his same old cell where the blood is on the wall, and he's looking very, very sad. Alright, so that's going to move us on to Batman Beyond, issue number one, written by Adam Beechin, art by Ryan Benjamin. And we first start off in Neo-Gotham at Cadmus Labs, which <clears throat> we know from the TV series Cadmus Labs is actually the modern, or uh, I guess uh, futuristic version of Arkham Asylum as Arkham Asylum was shut down for... Terry McGinnis became Batman Beyond. We see at Cadmus Labs, there's a bunch of people who've been murdered, and Amanda Waller is asking the nurse or doctor, it's hard to tell, I'm assuming it's a doctor, what exactly happened. She explains that uh, this person had to have their annual physical. They induced consciousness to run certain tests, and as they were doing that, they thought he had enough sedation levels, and obviously it wasn't, and this person escaped. She then says that, uh, don't worry, Cadmus cannot be accountable for anything that happens outside of its facility. We then cut to the alleyway where uh, someone's dealing some drugs, and this some person who is pretty much, pretty much naked except for a straight jacket knocks this drug dealer out and then covers him up and notices that Batman's flying overhead. Batman, which we know is Terry McGinnis, is taking out Spellbinder, and as he proceeds, he easily takes out Spellbinder. There is a couple-page fight where eventually uh, he takes him out and drops him on a uh, flying hover vehicle type thing that is going to go past the 9th Precinct. As Batman is about to take off, he is approached by somebody who's invisible, and it's actually not somebody invisible because it actually ends up being Micron, the... uh, futuristic version of the Atom. He's there to ask Batman to join the Justice League, and Batman says, thanks for the offer, but I still don't want to join. Uh, We then cut to somebody who is seeing somebody. He's dressed in a trench coat and has some kind of shocking, uh, like a taser. In one image, it doesn't look like a taser. It looks like a club that has something on the end, and then the next one, it actually is a taser that he has in his hands. He tases this this guy in the trench coat, tases the old man, and then grabs some knives and, and says he's going to make a, an example out of this person. We see the Batmobile flying through the sky. It comes back to the Batcave, and Terry finds Bruce in a lab building some stuff and he says I'll show you the stuff when it's all ready. Terry makes a bunch of comments about how he's really tired and he's been working a lot and the only way he would join the Justice League is if they had 36 hours in a day because he doesn't have enough time as it is. Bruce makes a comment about how he didn't always like being in the Justice League. It always seemed like something was off, it was very unstable, there's way too many variables working with so many people. Then what happens is they get this call right as Terry's about to leave about this person who was, uh, who was just murdered and the name is Philip Cobb. Well Philip Cobb is actually the name of the villain Signalman and Bruce tells Terry he has to go find out what's going on. Terry shows up, he sees that this man, Philip Cobb, was knifed many times all across his body, 
and he obviously was not, this obviously wasn't a, a robbery or something gone bad. This was somebody trying to make a statement. As Batman flies off, suddenly Bruce says over the, the comm unit, get over to St. James Hospital because something's going on. And he goes, well, what's the big deal with going to St. James? He said, because when Arkham Asylum disperses patients, some of them went to Cadmus Labs and some of them went to the psych ward at St. James. One of the people who went to the psych ward is Jervis Tech, the Mad Mad Hatter. Batman gets over there. He gets to the cell where Jervis Tech is, and he sees Tech in his uh, cell, muttering to himself. Batman or uh, Bruce Wayne does mention that one of the last fights that Batman had with the Mad Hatter, the Mad Hatter fried his brain. As Terry is looking inside the window of uh, uh, Jervis Tech's cell. He hears this scream and heads downstairs where he sees somebody attacking one of the nurses with knives. And whoever the guy is runs off and the nurse says, oh, well, he's gone now. What did he want? I don't understand what he wanted. All he wanted to know was he wanted to know where Jervis Tech was, but I don't know where he is because he's not on my floor. And then she says, just before he raised the knife to cut my throat, he told me to Hush, and we find out the in, begin. The name of the uh, story arc is Hush Beyond. That's Batman Beyond number one. That is going to take us to Joker's Asylum Clayface, written by Kevin Schnick, with artwork by Kelly Jones. The issue opens again at Arkham Asylum, where we meet up with the Joker. He explains he has another story for us entitled Mud Knight Madness. We cut to the Vista Theater, where Basil Carlo stars in The Terror. Outside the theater, a young kid tries to get into the movie, but the usher refuses to let her in. She continues to persist and then criticizes the film. The usher then transforms into Clayface and kills the young patron. We then get Clayface discussing his past and how Hollywood screwed him over, and how Hollywood is who made him the monster he is today. He begins to terrorize everyone in the theater when another patron confronts him. Clayface explains how one dies once they are consumed by the clay, and the patron tells him to do it. The patron is obsessed with Clayface. She explains that he speaks for all freaks, and she just wants to be a part of him. Clayface shows no sympathy. Three weeks later... Gordon Bullock are at the theater. We learn that the no- a number of teens have gone missing after entering the theater the last few weeks. They put two to two together, and Clayface is the answer. Batman begins to investigate from the inside. Once inside the theater, Batman learns that all of the employees are made of clay. This leads to a confrontation between Batman and Clayface. We see the female fan's head sticking out from under Clayface's chin, and Batman tries to pull her out, but she says she doesn't want to. We learn that all of the teens have become Clayface's children of clay, and then Clayface strikes Batman across the face. Batman and Clayface are fighting when the children of clay begin to surround and attack Batman. Clayface escapes, and later the teenagers are escorted out by the police, and they come to the conclusion that Clayface gave these teens a sense of identity. Basil Carlo left his mark in more ways than one on this theater. We cut back to the Joker at Arkham, who tells us to learn to read and to choke on that. And that is the end of Joker's Asylum 2, Clayface. I'll cut that cowl off your neck before you'll take her. I've waited my whole lonely life for her. Then all you've waited for is a puppet. 
a soulless little doll. It didn't have to be this way. You made me do this to her. <laughs> and now we get to Batman Odyssey number one, written and illustrated by Neil Adams, partially inked by Michael Golden and colored by Continuity Studios. The story begins with Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson in the Batcave as a suit-up, and Bruce recounts his early and temporary decision to use guns in his arsenal. We flash back to Bruce on a monorail, leaving at the top of the train in a very awkwardly designed Batman suit. It kind of, um, think of like the Batman serials with Lewis Wilson. He remarks on how silly he felt until he pulled out his .45 caliber gun, and... Once he gets to the top, he realizes that he stumbled upon a gasoline smuggling operation. It should be noted that this, 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 takes, this flashback takes place in about uh, South America. The smugglers at the far end of the train notice him and freak out at the sight of him. This leads into a gunfight where Batman uses his guns to shoot the gun, the other guns out of the smugglers' hands. Despite this, he takes a bullet in the forearm, though he does manage to defeat the smugglers and knock out all of them once he inches his way to the end of the monorail. During the fight, his mask is ripped off, and as the, the final goon goes down, he turns around and sees a character named... Commissioner Rodriguez at the end, holding him at gunpoint, thus issuing a standoff. Faced with the decision to shoot him, Bruce hesitates, leaving Rodriguez to be shot by an undercover agent coming out of the bottom slash top of the train. The sight of death reminds Bruce of his parents' murder and prompts him to never use guns again. Come back to the Batcave where Dick, who is in Tim Drake's original, Bat- or original Robin outfit, remarks on the power and confidence guns give the wielder. Suddenly Man-Bat appears and takes Dick for a ride, kind of carrying around the Batcave, while Bruce explains to Dick how being unarmed is actually beneficial as opposed to being armed in a gunfight. Bruce's inner monologue laments on his, and during past tense, I should say, how he wishes he paid more attention and how proud he was of Dick, and that how he didn't know the mystery was going on at the time, how he never knew how dangerous the time was. It's, it's rather confusing. Cut to the then scene where he asks Man Bat how long he's been under the influence where we're to assume that, you know, influence means the Man Bat state, and he starts yelling at him once he learns the answer is two hours. Commissioner Gordon radios Batman and Robin and says that their a raid on Wayne Enterprises has now begun underway. Batman and Robin drive off to the pier, despite Robin pointing out that the Riddler has called him out with typical riddles at the uh, Gotham City Mint. Batman comments on how he'll face the Riddler sooner or later, and unbeknownst to the dynamic duo, Man-Bat, back in the Batcave, is jumped by an even more powerful Man-Bat creature. This creature remarks on how Rachel Ghoul had to find out from an outside source that Bruce Wayne was Batman, and that he didn't find out himself, and that Langstrom is, is sooner becoming more and more worth killing. Cook back to Batman and Robin, who discuss at the, at the pier, the case is while the Batmobile turns into a Batplane. Once they arrive at the pier, the GCPD remark on how outgunned they are until the dynamic duo arrive and decide to attack from the, the inside of the pier, where the GCPD's faith in the situation is renewed. The issue ends with the criminals holding a professor and daughter characters hostage while searching for hydrogen tanks. Upon finding them, the lead guy machine guns at them, screaming, Blow them all to hell! And to be continued. The answer is still no. Alright, so that is all of our books. Let's get into our review wrap-up. Alright, so the first one we've got is Gotham City Sirens number 13. I don't really think this was the best issue. I mean, everybody knows that I'm not a huge Tony Bedard fan. Nothing against the guy, he just... He doesn't tell as good of stories as some other people. Now, that's not to say that what Paul Dini's been doing recently in Gotham City Sirens is anything to applause, but nonetheless, uh, it's like the lesser of two evils. Which one do I want? I don't know. Uh, The fact that Paul Dini is not even on the book two out of six issues, it's hard to go by. 
So I don't I don't think it was a great issue. It wasn't a bad issue by any means, but it wasn't a great issue. So I'm going to give this only two out of five batterings. Yeah, for me, this is not one of my favorite books, as everybody knows. But if it isn't Paul Dini writing these characters in this book, I'm even less interested in what's going on. And I like Tony Bedard. I don't particularly like what he does with the Bat universe, but I like some of his other stuff. But he doesn't. it doesn't seem like he meshes well with these characters, and I was not impressed at all with this issue, so I'll give this two out of five batterings. Well, Gotham City Sirens, I would have liked, maybe these are answers that they're giving us later, but I would have liked a little more of an explanation of why Maggie and Harley were seeing these trippy angels and demons all over the place. It was nice to pick up on this Maggie Kyle storyline that was started around Blackest Night. I didn't think that they were going to go anywhere with it, but at the same time, it's another fill-in issue. We had this whole cliffhanger almost two months ago. It might have even been three months at this point with... Poison Ivy at Star Labs and Paul Dini's disappeared again. It's just become this it's become this running gag now, Paul Dini and the need for fill in issues in his series. I am glad that for a fill in issue though, it did at least do something, you know, consequential to the rest of the series. And the R was alright, but due to the lack of explanation over what the heck is going on and just more fill in while we're waiting to get back to the main story, I'm gonna have to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Gotham City Sirens number 13 gets two out of five battering. So let's move on to Batman and Robin number 13. This issue was interesting. I, you know, when I started reading it, I did not understand the, the crazy sequence that happened in the first couple pages. It also didn't make any sense when DC posted up the review for this issue, and it was pages like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, instead of 1 through 5, like normal, but then it made sense of, okay, well, why did that happen? Oh, it's because they had this crazy sequence happen where Thomas Wayne actually murders Martha and his son. I'm assuming it is a different reality. I'm also, I thought, I, I, I was pretty sure, maybe I'm wrong, I was pretty sure we were under the assumption that El Piante, or P- Piante, whatever the heck his name is, is Black Glove. It, I, my assumption is it's, it's Dr. Hurt. Well, black, yeah, black of Dr. Hurt. So my assumption was that Dr. Hurt is this El Peante or whatever. <laughs> and uh, because of that, it made sense because he'd eventually come back. I mean, he looks just like him. I'm assuming that's the case. Now, it hasn't been stated that, and I know online plenty of people are making assumptions and saying what they think and are going on their assumptions. But that, you know, we know, we all know how Grant Morrison works, and he might not actually be going in the direction that everybody is thinking he's going in. This crazy sequence with Thomas Wayne being alive, I don't get where that's going. And I, I mean, I really just, I, I don't even understand it because we get six pages of this completely different reality, and I don't really get it at all because it doesn't make a lot of sense um, <laughs> I don't know maybe I'm, maybe I'm just an idiot and I just don't get it uh, what's, what is interesting is uh, Dick Grayson gets popped in the head with a cap but uh, we'll see what happens with that um, not a bad issue you know I, I, I don't dislike Fraser Irving's art but just like Frank Quietly he, he has his little niche and he's good at his niche and 
I'm not a big fan of Frank Quietly. He's a great artist. Uh, there's no denying he's a good artist. But I, it's not my cup of tea. So because of that, uh, this issue is going to get only three and a half out of five batterings. Well, unlike Dustin, I want to start off by saying this is probably the best Batman issue I've read in 2010. This brought back a lot of the fun and exciting and action-packed fun that the first three issues had. Um, the artwork, I thought, was was great. I was really impressed with Fraser Irving, and I'm excited to see more from him, especially when I look at this art and I realize that it's all digital. Um, it's really impressive to me. Uh, one of the really cool things about this issue was it, con- it contained a lot of homages to previous stories, like the cover is referencing a death in the family, except it's altered. Robin is being the Joker instead of the Joker being Robin, which we see later on in the issue. And also the first page is a reference to Mazet. Mazzuchelli's cover of Batman 404, which is Batman Year One, except Thomas Wayne survives instead of Bruce. A lot of this stuff in this issue also plays directly into R.I.P., but I'm not going to get into that because we'll be here forever. The issue also has some really great moments between Gordon and Dick as Dick Grayson, the Dick Grayson Batman. Um, Morrison tries to really develop that relationship, and there's some really good dialogue shared between them in during those moments in the issue. I think Damien being the Joker with the crowbar was, was just perfect. <laughs> that was such a great moment to read, and then to top it all off, the Joker is screaming for help as he's getting beat instead of just laughing, um, I thought was great. And I think Professor Big coming back was, was just was great also. He is amazingly creepy, and it's almost, he's almost too creepy. But that just reiterates the genius of Grant Morrison. But this arc has the makings of becoming something really epic, I think, so I definitely look forward to the next chapters. For me, this is a perfect issue, so five out of five batterings. Yeah, uh, I like this issue a lot. I really did. Um, mainly because it was, like, appropriately very, very creepy. The entire uh, Dr. Hurt, Thomas Wayne sequence in the beginning, like, this is like, like well, Fraser Irving was, like, the perfect artist for this, because... He looks so evil in all of his pictures, and I agree that a trope with Grant Morrison as you really don't know what's going on, but in this one, I, you feel that you don't know what's going on in a good way. You're like, what's going to happen next? And the dark tone of this issue with um, the Batmobile being attacked, like like rocket launchered, and Joker getting beat the crap out of by Robin with a crowbar, it's just good stuff. And it's not only that, but just the writing is appropriate. There's a mystery... And I thought this was, you know, just firing on all cylinders. This was a, a really, really, really satisfying issue. So I, too, will give it five out of five batterings. All right. And then uh, Dane on the website gave it four out of five batterings. So that's going to give Batman Robin number 13 4.5 out of five batterings. All right, so moving along to Red Robin number 14. Red Robin number 14, I don't have anything bad against this issue. I think it was a good issue, and I think Fabian's continuing to do what he does best, right, Tim Drake? Three out of five veterans. You can't complain when Fabian's writing Tim Drake. He just writes a really fun, awesome book. The art, action-packed, solid as usual. I don't really have any complaints. Four out of five veterans. I also enjoyed this issue. Um, I thought Marcus Toe was a... Just, just like last issue in issue 13, he was, he's pretty much a perfect artist for this book, just in terms of how he gets the musculature and physique of Tim Drake as compared to Ramon Bach. I like Ramon Bach, but I thought that this is even better. Um, this was fun. It was fun seeing Tim take out Damien, or at least beat him down, instead of the, the opposite as we've been seeing. And um, 
it was interesting to learn that Tim's future plans and that he's actually becoming more like Bruce with the whole playing against the heroes just just in case scenario. Even though this a lot of times during Tim, Tim's character history, he doesn't want to be Bruce. So this is a very interesting, satisfying issue. I'll give it four out of four betterings. All right, and Swap Star on the website gave it three and a half out of five betterings. All right, so that'll give Red Robin number 14 three and a half out of five betterings. Moving along to Superman Batman number 73. All right, Superman Batman, um, we continue the story arc that we got the first part in the last, in 72. I'm not really feeling this uh, as much as, I mean, I, I, I do like what Paul Levitz does. This is more of, it seems to me, he's trying to get accustomed back to writing in general. That doesn't mean what he's doing is, is like, you know, oh, I'm rusty or anything like that. It just, it, it seems like this was what DC said, okay, we'll give you Superman, an arc on Superman Batman to get your, you know, get your, uh, your feet back on the ground. I'm not finding this super interesting, but then again, it's also, a, it's more of a Superman story than is a Batman story, which in most cases, the Superman Batman stories end up being that like that for some reason. I'm not sure what that says about the fact that somehow we always end up having better story arcs come out of Batman, but yet whenever we have Superman Batman, they always end up being more about Superman. Whatever, I'm getting off track. I don't know what I'm doing. I must be Josh. Oh, um... What a cheap shot. Uh, He's not even here. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. I had nothing to do with it. Art overall, really good. I do like the art. Jerry Ordway's is, is good stuff, and, I, and, I, and I'm wondering where, where he's been. Now, I don't read everything in the DC Universe, and I sure don't read a whole lot outside of the DC Universe, so I don't know what he's been up to, but this is some good stuff, and uh, okay story. Not, not awesome. Okay story. Awesome art. Three out of five bad ranks. First off, no complaints about the artwork. Jerry Away draws the characters with a very classic feel, and I really appreciate that. And his work in the book is what gives it that Silver Age feel. The story, the first issue of Levitt's arc, I was really optimistic. and But this has become one of those typical Superman stories. And I don't feel like Batman really needs to be in this story right now. Uh, Levitt hasn't really given him much to do. And in his Superman title, I would be fine with that. But, you know, Dustin was talking about this earlier. This is a Superman-Batman title. So that's where the problem lies with me. But I'm still interested to see where this goes. But I don't expect any real surprises. And it's not that I don't like Levitz. I would rather have Levitz writing stories out of continuity than Judd Winnick writing stories in continuity. But I can't do anything about that. But solid issue, just very predictable, three out of five batterings. All right, so... Also, with Superman Batman number 73, Steve J. Rogers gave it 5 out of 5 batterings. So that will give Superman Batman number 73 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Batman Beyond number 1. I thought this issue was really good. Do I think it was really amazing because of the two-word story arc that we found out at the end? No. I think Adam Beechin hyped this up a little too much. I think he overestimates the value that Hush has on the Batman universe. Maybe he didn't know this, but a lot of people don't really particularly like Hush right now because basically, well, we all know what Hush is right now. He gave himself plastic surgery, so it looks like Bruce Wayne. But he's been being used really, really stupidly. He's only been appearing in Streets of Gotham, and I think he maybe has had one or two appearances in Gotham City Sirens, but it hasn't been good. Paul Dini is really, like, taking 
a character that for a while was a very popular character within the Batman universe, and he's destroying that character by having him do what he's doing. Hush Beyond. Wow, I was completely blown away. No, no, I wasn't. Uh, let's see, Page, I think it was somewhere in the middle of the book when the guy is wearing a, uh, a brown trench coat. It looks exactly like the trench coat that Hush wore in the Hush storyline in Batman with Jim Lee and Jeff Loeb. Oh, uh. yeah. I can't imagine. And then he grabs a couple knives. Oh, what is what is Hush? Oh, yeah. What was I supposed to think? It was Zaz? <laughs> I really think Zaz is going to carry a six-issue miniseries? No. that The lead-up at the end of the, the issue was ridiculous. Oh, when he rose the knife to cut my throat, he whispered to me, Hush. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This just... But despite the fact that I make it seem like I don't like the issue because I'm berating Adam Beechin for his Hush Beyond build-up, it was a really good issue. I know a lot of people don't know who Philip Cobb is or Signalman, but you know what? That's what's interesting. The fact that one of the things that I had a problem with the Batman Beyond TV series was that we didn't actually find out everything that happened with all of the different people. Like, how did Bruce Wayne end up completely by himself? The only other person we knew about before the Batman Beyond movie came out was Barbara Gordon was the commissioner. I knew in comics that she was in a wheelchair. In the in the show, she's not in a wheelchair. So how did that happen? I don't know. But we uh, but the I mean the big thing is we never found out what happened. Batman Beyond uh, Return of the Joker's answered a couple questions about the uh, sidekicks and uh, the Joker and Harley Quinn, but it didn't answer a lot of questions about the other villains, the vast variety of villains that we have in the Batman universe. So I I like the fact that okay yes okay fine bring Hush in okay whatever. Hush, whatever. But bring, you know, Jervis Tech. See what happened to Jervis Tech. The fact that he, you know, we find out that he actually blew his mind out by using his mind control devices and it actually worked against him. That's interesting to learn. Signalman, useless. But we do know that Catwoman's going to be in a future issue as well. I think this idea is nice. I think this is doing exactly what the first series should have done instead of the series being strictly about what happened in the show they're incorporating things from the comics and the show together and making it an interesting series that not only comic fans can read and appreciate but also people who like the show can read and appreciate so this issue I'm going to give 4 out of 5 batteries I feel like Adam Beechin captures the flavor of the TV show really well in his writing Dustin pretty much laid it all out for you pretty well so i'm not going to get too far into it either but the artwork i feel like ryan benjamin is almost trying too hard to make it look like the tv show and it's not as successful also terry mcginnis face is pretty inconsistent throughout this you don't know if he's five or if he's 35 i don't know it's kind of weird <laughs> when i'm looking at his face but i do think that you know this book is incorporating what made the show popular to the people that liked it, and then it is incorporating things from the comics, and it is combining them pretty well together at this first issue. And it's okay to criticize Adam Beechin sometimes because he needs to be brought down from his pedestal. I don't know how he got up there, but that that's another time. Uh, oh, I just said okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, three out of five batterings. All right, and Steve J. Rogers gave it three out of five batterings, so that's going to give... Batman Beyond number one, three out of five batterings. 
All right, so Joker's Asylum, Clayface, uh, overall, Kelly Jones on the book. A lot of people know that, well, you know, back in the day when Apple used to be on the comic cast, uh, we used to have these uh, discussions about Kelly Jones' artwork style back when uh, he was doing Batman Gotham After Midnight. I'm not a fan of Kelly Jones. You know, as much as I, you know, I, I make comments about Frank Quietly and now I'm making comments about Fraser Irving. Kelly Jones is like, I read it and I feel like I'm I'm looking at some kind of UV ray that's burning my eyeballs out of my sockets. That's just the way I feel. So the story wasn't wasn't really that great, not very memorable. And honestly, I feel like this Joker's Asylum series, although it wasn't very good to begin with, did not end on a high note. So I'm going to give this one out of five bad ranks. Joker's Asylum Clayface. I like Kelly Jones. You know I like Kelly Jones, um, but he is an acquired taste. You, His style fits some things. It doesn't fit everything. I feel like the script here was really poor, just like all these other Joker Asylum issues, which I really hope that they don't put out a third series of one-shots anytime. Oh, real quick, real quick. You know, I remember when the Joker's Asylum started, the very first one that came out was the Riddler and th- this set around, and they posted up something on the source from Mike Mart saying, and Mike Mart said, "Oh, I go to conventions all the time, and people ask me when am I bringing back Joker's Asylum." I've been to a lot of conventions. I've never heard a person say, "When are you bringing Joker's Asylum back?" And I can't imagine who's saying that, considering the sales for these books absolutely suck. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who really likes reading these. Um, I felt like I was kind of excited for the Clayface one because we don't really see him much in the comics at all, and this wasn't really anything, anything spectacular. So I'll give this one out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Joker's Asylum two Clayface one out of five batterings. Moving in Joker's Asylum Killer Croc again, <laughs> nothing really super special here. Um, we didn't have Kelly Jones, so to me, for just my personal rating, it does boost it up a little bit. But I didn't like the art anyway, so it didn't really make a difference. This story had nothing special about it either, so I'm going to give this one and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, everything I just said about the Joker is I'm Clayface. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's just, we're just, here's how we're going to do it. I'm, no, I'm just, everything I said about Joker's Asylum Clayface really applies to this issue too, except for it was Killer Croc, and it was even less interesting to me. Um, and there was no Kelly Jones, so for my personal rating, it goes down a little bit. So that leaves it with half a battering out of five. The Killer Croc story was great, but he seemed like more of a pawn. He literally had almost no dialogue in there, and if the character is getting a one-shot, I like the character to figure more into the story. We get a little bit of insight to him at the end, but otherwise we see more from the point of view of everyone else. He doesn't get that much internal monologue. He doesn't really get that much dialogue. It's just Killer Croc, and honestly, you knew from the beginning of the story when the family took him in that he was going to wind up murdering the family, because that's how most of the Killer Croc stories go. Someone's nice to him, and then, surprise, surprise, in the end, they hurt his feelings by calling him a monster or using them as a tool, and he kills them. It's a tired Killer Croc story. The whole thing about him chewing his own arms off. When did this guy become the lizard? Now, I know that Hush, back in uh, that big storyline from about five or six years ago, injected Killer Croc with some stuff that made him more reptile-like. 
but now he's literally more reptile than man that he can chew his own limbs off and grow them back. I may be a little behind on some of my Killer Croc stories, but I'm going to go out on a limb, no pun intended, and say that he's probably never done that before. Somebody can, with more knowledge about Killer Croc can correct me if I'm wrong, and that was a little weird. I mean, this used to be just a guy who had a skin disorder. Now he's a giant crocodile who can grow limbs back. I think that this was a missed opportunity to see things from Killer Croc's level, and I really hate the whole who's the monster, the monster, or the other people stuff that we get in fiction sometimes. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. So that's going to give Joker's Asylum 2 one out of five batterings. Moving into our last book, Batman Odyssey number one. This was this was good. I can't say that I I really enjoy the story that uh, Neil Adams is telling at this point, but it's not a bad story. I, I don't know that I can say that Neil Adams is as good of a writer as he is an artist at this point, but his art is amazing. So I'm interested to see where it goes, um, but based on just the first issue, I can't really give it any more than three out of five batterings. Yeah, here's when I first heard about this, and this has been in the talks for a long time. Neil Adams drawing Batman. I am perfectly okay with that. And this issue, really, his artwork, you can see that he hasn't really lost anything. His art is still great. And there were some things in this story that I liked, but when I heard that Neil Adams was writing this, um, I became a little suspect. Um, and the story is kind of like, you're kind of reading the story, and it's like, okay, all right. You know, and the the whole guns thing is kind of interesting, but the story the story lacks what the art has. So, yeah, the the art is too fast for the story, but the art is great. It's the story that suffers here. So, the, the art is so good that I'm am going to give this three out of five batterings, but the story is is not so hot. Yeah, I this story was definitely interesting. I think that's the best word for it. The art was spectacular. Because um, Neil Adams, obviously, without saying, is a classic Batman artist. Every time he draws Batman, it's all just whatever he's doing is amazing. Um, at the same time, I will say I've seen better from him because there were a lot of times where the people's mouths kind of had that like I don't want to say offense, but like the the people's mouths were, were <laughs> <laughs> they have they have the oh boy. they have that seventies look. I mean, that's the it looks like. A, a 70s Batman story. Well, I mean, even Except considering the ink, that... The ink really defines... The ink is really dark in this. I oh, yeah, with G- Giordano's inks in the 70s made it even better. I think that, like... I think I, I just say that I see a lot of the same mouths in this story it's instead of more um, distinct, separate character designs. But, I mean, the art, the art is basically perfect. The story is very, very strange because... I think it's it, it's basically Batman telling Robin a story while another thing's going on. So this thing is hyped up as Neil Adams writing and drawing, Batman using guns, and the story ends up being yeah, I use guns. I didn't I didn't like I didn't like it. I didn't want to kill people, so I, I discarded them. Come on, Robin, let's go. And really awkward. Story is well, really awkward. Another thing is like the continuity is kind of really strange because obviously this takes place. Back where Neil Adams was comfortable doing Batman, when Robin was Dick Grayson and you know Commissioner Gordon, and obviously Bruce Wayne's Batman here, but Bruce Dick Grayson for one thing is in Tim Drake's original or classic uh, Robin costume with the long pants. That's odd. 
Batman Batmobile, which is the same Batmobile from the 70s comics that Dean O'Neill wrote, it, it all of a sudden it flies. I thought that the first one to fly was the one that Batman, Dick and Damien are using right now. So that might be something that that's I'm not really known about, but it was strange to me. And overall, the tone of the writing felt like it was around that era where Denny O'Neill wrote Batman, because Denny O'Neill did give Batman a more sarcastic edge to his voice, to his personality. But at the same time, it was when Denny O'Neill wrote it, there was a lot more in line with his personality despite despite that. Whereas here, I feel that Adams kind of gives him a little a little rougher, inappropriate voice. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't mind that he's joking around with dicks, calling him oh, boy, boy blunder or anything, but at the same time, it kind of feels a little out of place. And the whole plot with, like, the, the, the Riddler, Batman ignoring the Riddler and the people raiding Wayne Foundation, you're really not understanding what's going on. So while the art is perfect, and it is kind of fun seeing this, I think that the story was um, subpar. So, but, but I did enjoy this. I don't, I don't want to say that I didn't enjoy this. I'll give this um, three out of five batterings. So Batman Odyssey number one gets three out of five bad ranks. So that's the end of our review wrap-up. Let's throw over Nick with Bat Books for a beginner. Hello there and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm Nick and today I'm going to guide you through one more of Batman's classic stories. Today I'm looking at a book that was originally published in 1989, Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. It was written by the current head writer of the Batman books, and he's written such stories as Gothic, which I reviewed earlier on BBFB, Batman and Son, Batman R.I.P., and of course the brilliant current Batman and Robin series. He's currently working on Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne series, and his name is Grant Morrison. Quite an accomplished writer. The art with this, in this book is provided by Dave McKean, who has also worked on Hellblazer and Black Orchid. Now, timeline-wise, this book is a one-off that could really fit most places in Batman's career. But I felt it would work fairly well here after Jason Todd's death recently. Batman's in a pretty dark place, and I think this book portrays that fairly well. So I thought I'd slip it in here. So, let's get on with the plot.
Commissioner Gordon informs Batman that the patients of Arkham Asylum have taken over the building and will murder the staff unless Batman agrees to meet with them. Among the hostages is a young woman named Pearl, Dr. Charles Cavendish and Dr. Ruth Adams. The patients are led by the Joker who kills a guard to spur Batman to obey his wishes. Two-Face, meanwhile, has degenerated even further into madness as a result of Adams' therapy. She replaced Two-Face's trademark coin with a six-sided die, and then with a tarot deck of cards, in the hope that he would begin to realise he doesn't need any of them. It instead renders him incapable of even making simple decisions, such as going to the bathroom. Batman is forced into a game of hide-and-seek, and told he has one hour to make his way through the maze-like corridors, and find a way out before his old foes are sent to find him. But the Joker shortens the time from one hour, due to pressure from the other inmates. The story is interspersed with flashbacks from Arkham's founder, Amadeus Arkham, his life and his childhood. These flashbacks reveal that he was inspired to become a psychiatrist because of his mother's mental illness. Subsequently, Batman reaches a secret room high in the towers of the asylum, a room left unchanged from the days when the property served as Amadeus Arkham's childhood home. Inside, Dr. Cavendish is dressed in a bridal gown and holding a straight razor to Dr. Adams' throat. He is revealed to have been the one to orchestrate the riots. When questioned by Batman, he prompts him to read a passage marked out in Amadeus Arkham's secret diary. The hidden room turns out to have been Elizabeth Arkham's bedchamber. For many years she suffered delusions that she was being tormented by a supernatural creature and would call to her son to protect her. One day, however, he finally sees what his mother saw, a great bat, spectre of death. Taking a pearl-handled straight razor from his pocket, he cuts his mother's throat to end her suffering. He then blocks out the memory and attributes her death to suicide. Later, his wife and daughter are murdered by one of his former patients, a serial killer named Martin Mad Dog Hawkins. The tragedy brings back the memory of killing his mother. Traumatised, Amadeus puts on his mother's wedding dress and takes out the razor. Kneeling in the blood of his family, he vows to bind the evil spirit of the bat, which he believes inhabits the house, through ritual and sorcery. He treats Hawkins for months until finally electrocuting him in a shock therapy session. Discovering Amadeus Arkham's journal, the razor and the dress, Cavendish begins to believe himself to be destined to continue Arkham's work. On April 1st, the day Arkham's family was murdered, he lures Batman to the, ar- to the asylum, believing Batman to be the Bat itself. Cavendish accuses him of feeding the evil of the house by bringing in more insane souls. Grappling with Batman, Cavendish drops the razor and Adams picks it up. As Batman is being strangled by Cavendish, he begs her to do something, and she slashes the razor across Cavendish's throat, killing him. Seizing an axe, Batman runs to the foyer, where the inmates are congregated and hacks down the front door. He then returns to Two-Face's coin, back from Dr. Adams, stating that it should be up to Two-Face to decide Batman's fate. Two-Face then declares that they will kill Batman if the coin lands scratch side up, but let him go if the unscarred side appears. Two-Face flips the coin and declares Batman free. The Joker bids Batman goodbye, taunting him by saying that should life ever become too much for him in the asylum, as in the outside world, then he always has a place in Arkham. As Batman disappears into the night, Two-Face stands looking at the coin and it was revealed that it landed scratched side up. He chose to let Batman go. Returned home today to find my family murdered by my patient Martin Hawkins. I feel oddly detached. 
September 17, 1921. Today I begin treatment of Martin Hawkins. I will rehabilitate this man. April 2nd, 1922. During treatment with Hawkins, I resorted to extreme measures. It proved more than he could sustain. June 4th, 1923. Gotham City is lost. The lunatics are irrepressible, incurable. The only sensible treatment, eradication. October 18, 1923. Am I a doctor or a murderer? I can no longer differentiate. I will give my last breath to deal with the filth that infects Gotham City. And now for my review. I thought that Grant Morrison did a fantastic job of really altering the characters' interpretations in this book. Killer Croc, for instance, was more of a deformed person like the Elephant Man. Clayface is closer to a leper. Uh, Dr. Destiny, who I wasn't familiar with before, but he I did a bit of research. He's now a frail, creepy man in a wheelchair. I thought these depictions were very interesting, and even the more standard villains like Two-Face and the Joker have an interesting twist. Um, for instance, the Joker's seem to be a little bit more overtly sexual than before, and Two-Face with his new forms of decision-making. And the Joker doesn't seem to be quite insane, but at a higher level of consciousness than just insane. Uh, Dave McKean's art was pretty astounding. His brushwork in places was gorgeous. Um, Some of it was fantastic work, really impressive, very, very different to anything you're going to see, so it's worth a look just for that. And the combination of these two creators, I think, did a great job of really delivering a new style of book. Some people will tell you it's very pretentious. Uh, I personally don't agree with this. Um, Some people think it's quite vacant and symbolism's a bit obvious. But um, I think if you look at most books uh, that you read, that I've reviewed, it's certainly got a lot more going for it than some of the others I've seen. I like the fact that Batman seems a little bit lost in this book. Um, that's why I thought it might work well off with the grief of Jason Todd. Um, we're usually familiar with Batman knowing exactly what to do. He has a plan, but in this he seems like Batman's a little bit more lost in the dark or even hiding from something. Uh, maybe it's the truth about these villains and where they came from, and maybe he is some sort of curse on Arkham. As Batman mentions... To Commissioner Gordon, it'd be just like coming home when he goes through the gates at Arkham Asylum. I thought the story involving the flashbacks was very engaging. I was very interested in the Arkham Asylum's founder, Dr. Arkham, uh, witnessing unspeakable violence uh, to his family and uh, his mother's dementia. And it's interesting that it seems to have left some sort of curse on the asylum. Really enjoyed that part. But I don't think this story is for everyone. Uh, The book's... It's very serious reading. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot to the book that isn't... Uh, you know, it's quite subtle. You have to really appreciate it. Not for everyone. It's not full of action. It's full of a bit more philosophy, I think. And some pretty unsettling ideas. And uh, maybe best to be kept away from younger readers. It's not your traditional superhero comic. It's instead more of a psychological theory or philosophy as I mentioned using superhero characters because they're quite overt and out of this world especially the Batman villains you can gain a lot from rereading the book Uh, it's quite brutal, it's frightening as I've said it is for a mature reader and unfortunately I think in the second half of the book it does slightly dip away from that Uh, I found that 
also with the killing joke too where I think the first half was fantastic really questions some major points and then the second half it almost turns to the traditional good guy versus bad guy uh, fight where we have Batman battling the Joker and the resolution's never that usually that great and in the end unfortunately it makes the story sometimes seem a little bit simple um, after such a fantastic start it does cram a lot of villains in there with not a lot of point. For instance, people like Scarecrow is one villain I can think of where it didn't really need to be there. But as I said, there were some really impressive themes drawn out from the book. Mostly for its uniqueness, I would recommend it as something you need to have read. So, in conclusion, I'll be giving it 5 out of 5 Batarangs. So that was my review for Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time I'm looking at Batman, The Many Deaths of the Batman, which includes issues from the Batman series, numbers 433, 434 and 435, where some mysterious events are happening, including surely not the death of Batman. Anyway, look forward to that next time, and... For now, let me just remind you that you can always contact me at nick at thebatmanuniverse.net, that's N-I-C-K, or pop on the forums and give some feedback. haven't had a lot lately, so would greatly appreciate some words of wisdom from the listeners. That has been Bat Books for Beginners for this time. I'm now going to send you back to Dustin and the guys. Farewell. So that was Bat Book for just Beginners. Make sure you're listening for the next episode and you can hear Batman, the many deaths of Batman. All right, so let's get into our upcoming releases for the next two weeks. On July 21st, we have Azrael number 10, Batman Beyond number 2, Batman Streets of Gotham number 14, Superman Batman number 74. All right, and then July 28th, we have Azrael Death's Dark Knight, Batman Brave and the Bold number 19, Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne number 4, Batman Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader, Batman The Widening Gear number 6, maybe, Detective Comics <laughs> number 867, Gotham City Sirens number 14. And also, because of Comic-Con, uh, we will actually be one week behind with the comic, next comic podcast. So on August 4th, we will also be having Batman Confidential number 47, Batman Arkham Reborn, Batman Odyssey number 2, Red Robin, number 15, and Red Hood Lost Days, number 3. So you can look forward to all those books in the next three weeks. As far as what we'll be covering on the next podcast, well, the first things we're going to be covering is the two books we were able to, we were unable to obtain before this podcast, which was Batman Confidential, number 46, and Red Hood Lost Days, number 2. Um, we will also be covering Batgirl 12, Batman 701, Birds of Prey, number 3. Ezreal 10, Batman Beyond, number 2, 
Streets of Gotham, number 14, Superman, Batman, 74. And even more than that, Return of Bruce Wayne, number 4, Widening Gear, number 6, maybe, Detective Comics, 867, and Gotham City Sirens, number 14. So a lot, but not as many as we would have had in a three-week time frame in June. So that's everything. And we might not actually get to all of those comics, depending on what we can obtain from uh, the, the week of the 28th, but... Uh, that's what we plan on covering in the next episode. All right, so that's everything for this episode. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube for uh, most current YouTube video or videos that we're posting on YouTube. You can send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can join the forums. If you're having a problem joining the forums, make sure you send us a separate email telling us that you can't get in and let us know the, name, the username you have. If you do not do this, we will most likely never approve your name because we get literally probably 75 usernames per day that all look like the same spam type things and unless somebody at, like literally puts something that is a very specific name like the Joker which has not been used yet by the way it's very difficult to figure out whether or not it's spam or whether or not it's something else so make sure you send us an email with that. Make sure you are following everything this coming week for San Diego Comic-Con. There's all kinds of stuff that have been announced. There's DC comic panels every single day that we're going to be covering. We're going to be posting up videos on YouTube and on the website of different interviews that we're getting from comic book creators and different people in the comics industry, as well as obviously other Batman-related topics like movies, video games, TV... So you can check all those out. You can also, like I mentioned earlier, follow us on Twitter. The big thing is, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll actually be able to possibly meet up with us, depending on the amount of time we have. We're going to be tweeting our location around the convention, around San Diego, the entire time we're there. So make sure you're you're following us on Twitter. It's Batman Universe, and just follow us, and you'll be able to receive our tweets so that's pretty much everything. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, be sure to send us an email. Even though we won't be in our normal bat offices, we'll obviously still be able to get your emails while we're in San Diego. So that's everything for this episode. I want to thank Donovan for coming back on, and we just might have him on again sometime in the future. Right. All right, so this is Dustin. This is Zach. This is Donovan. And you've been listening to the Batman Viewers Comic Podcast, episode 47. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Adios. Welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 47. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. Did we lose Zach? I haven't heard Zach say a word since we started the call. His phone is on. Looks like it. So, yeah. (laughs) He says he's away, so, well... Zach, you there? Type? Yes? Is your mic on mute? Oh, it just turned green.
Blooper, blooper, blooper. So we still can't hear anything, Zach. This will be like that 50th episode where, who was it that they lost their mic halfway through, so we were reading their responses from the Skype window? I think it was Nick or Zach. And now we lost Josh. Awesome. If I'm, if I'm jinxing the show, I'm sorry. No. Normally it's always Josh's fault. <laughs> Is this something we left in? Is this recording right now? No, he's not gonna leave it in. It's... <laughs> if I if I sound like I, if I sound a little confused, it's because I'm I'm kind of confused. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. You're never gonna guess what happened to me. Well, I was guess at. You went somewhere. Yeah. And they weren't open. No, they were open, but I was on the way back. I was attacked by a mob of old ladies with picnic chairs. What? Yeah, I was turning down the street, and they were just everywhere. <laughs> and I had to stop, and they were, like, all walking around my car and everything. I was scared. Were they, were they like, Grey Panthers or something? Were they, like, fighting for the elderly's rights? No, I don't know what they were doing. I think they had sprinklers or something going on somewhere, so they... Not sprinklers, I mean sparklers. Sparklers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Written by Fabian Nichezza, illustrated by yeah, Marcus okay, Cho. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Nisiza. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> or, you just, or you just say Fabian. I never say his last name because I don't know what the hell it is. Oh, that'll be the last time you heard me on the ship. Okay. Um. Topi picks up and doesn't freak out because he doesn't know who's calling. Yes, it's us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you. <laughs> uh, we can. I just got. He called six one two three four. Funny. That's Skype. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I could. It's it's updating, so I don't know what you want to do this with me on my phone the whole time. Well, we can do you with the phone just for the news, because we. Josh has to leave in like fifteen minutes. We only got two things for news. This is going to be great for the second blooper show. Wrong, wrong show. Wrong show. Yeah. Wrong show. <laughs>